Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alexander Payne's new film, Downsizing. The film follows Paul and his wife Audrey, who make the life-altering decision to shrink themselves to five inches tall, using a newly discovered process created as a solution to overpopulation. While the process is irreversible, it promises to make their money go much further in a miniaturized world. After Paul undergoes the procedure, he finds that there's more to existence when there's less of him. In addition to downsizing, Mr. Payne's credits include the feature films Nebraska, The Passion of Martin, Citizen Ruth, Election, and About Schmidt. Mr. Payne is a two-time nominee for both the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film and the Academy Award for Best Director for his 2011 feature The Descendants and his 2004 feature Sideways. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Payne spoke with director Taylor Hackford about filming Downsizing. During their conversation, Mr. Payne discusses the experience of directing his first visual effects-heavy film, casting the female lead Hong Chow, and where the far-fetched idea for the film came from. So I hope you enjoyed that film as much as I did, and I think we're... Very privileged to have the director and the creator here, Alexander Payne. Wish to point out my uh, distinguished second unit director here, Tracy Boyd, fellow DGA brother. So, um, as I said, I, this is the second time I've seen the film. Um, the first time I saw the film, it was at the Producers Guild, because they had it, I wanted to see it, and it came up earlier there than here. And the audience was in stitches. They loved it, in the sense that they thought it was a comedy. Uh, tonight, you had plenty of laughter, but not as much, which means I think you're a much smarter group. <laughs> uh, only in the sense that I think this is a rather serious film, and with Alexander, he always has great humor in his films, but um, it's too easy to call something a comedy. Um, and uh, I think this is a, just, a, just a wonderful um, and totally unique vision. So let's start with how you came to that vision, when, and how long did it take to get it to the screen? First of all, with your comment, I just came from a day. I'm just, you know, it's coming out in three weeks, and I just started doing interviews today at the Four Seasons Hotel and all that. Today was the f the foreign press, and about three people said, uh, you know, I enjoyed your film, but I walked out feeling really depressed. And I said, I'll take that as a compliment. You really understood the film. So anyway, thanks. Um, 
the where the idea came from my co-writer Jim Taylor's wacky brother Doug Taylor, who has nothing to do with movies, but uh, was was telling Jim for years, you know, you guys should make a movie someday about little people because you know if you were this little, you could have a big house on a big yard with only about you know three square feet, and you know your food bills would be very little, and you know maybe big people and small people would start to hate each other. You know, you guys should do something with that. What the hell are you going to do with that? And then, uh, this is years ago, uh, we had some success with Sideways. And that same year, George Bush was reelected. And uh, after four feature films, I had the inkling, the, I was feeling it would be nice to do something with, you know, a little more ambitious, maybe a little bit bigger scope, see what that feels like. And it would also maybe be polite to do something with a political consciousness to it. You know, as long as you have the, the ability to make films, you know, try to use it somewhat responsibly and maybe something a little bit more like, oh, Chuck, thanks, a little bit more like our first films, uh, Citizen Ruth and Election, which were, you know, have some degree of uh, political, social satire. Anyway, didn't have the metaphor, though. You can't do these things. Uh, they can't be literal. Um, and in 06, I suddenly remembered this idea, and I thought, well, huh, how would that really, really come about? Well, probably someone would conceive it as a panacea for overpopulation and climate change. And who would conceive of that? Well, probably Scandinavians, because they're brilliant and crazy enough to think about stuff like that. And where in Scandinavia? Well, probably Norway. That sounds pretty wacky. You know, we get a lot, a lot of laughs out of Scandinavians. And then... I, well, then he start. Then this chain reaction thinking starts. Well, this would happen, and that would happen, and this would happen. So Jim went for it, and we started writing. But we and it took a long time. Now the second part of your question: How long did it take? All these years. I wanted it to be my follow-up to Sideways, but the script took a long time. To, a long time to corral. How do you find a story and a protagonist to serve as the proper vehicle for this? quite cinematic idea, I think. And so that took a long time, and it was such a big idea that really it's the idea for like a mini-series or something, but we wanted to make a movie. And how do you m corral a lot of greedy screenplay ideas into two or two and a half hours? And then financing took was basically impossible for years because of the budget I was asking for. Mm -hmm. I was told by two studio heads, it's too intelligent of a script to merit that budget. Their word, not mine. <laughs> uh, but finally, as it always, as it has a couple times in my career, one person, in this case Brad Gray, over at Paramount, said to his staff, I know it doesn't make sense on paper, we're making it anyway. And what was the budget? Seventy-five. You know, it's it's an extraordinary achievement in terms of production design. I mean, you know, for, we just take it for granted. You know, the the whole uh, you know the the little people and your your cinematic tricks to that. But within that world, to make the sets work, to make the the scale, the the, the whole process, and to have that different vision of the world. I mean, that's, it, it, it's an amazing achievement, it really is. I will let her know. 
please. <laughs> yeah, she she did fantastic. I I think that um, the other thing in terms of locations. Now, Alexander's from Nebraska. If you didn't know it, he he puts it in all his movies. Taylor's from Santa Barbara. If you didn't know it. <laughs> so in in that instance. Um, did you? Where did you shoot the Nebraska section? Omaha. You did. Great. Uh, exteriors. Yeah. Uh, the movie was a, a week in L.A., a week in Omaha, a week in Norway, and four months in Toronto. That was that was the big thing. Well, where was all that? The, the you know when when you when you have the uh, the community that looks like the Southwest. Yeah, uh, it was sunny in those days in Toronto. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the road work leading up to it, the drive-ins, that was shot out in uh, around uh, Palmdale. That was our week in L.A. was shot the Ontario airport and shot Palmdale and shot at a stage in Echo Park and so forth. Uh, but then we found some things to match on sunny days up in Toronto. The hideous McMansions you see in the film are all in Toronto. They are. You think Canadians are so thrifty and modest, they ain't. Wow. It's all a big cover. The, the most ridiculous, absurd big mansions I've ever seen. You totally fooled me. I thought, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, well, I mean, I don't know where you, where you shot those, but I would never have thought that the whole, uh, mo the majority of the picture was in Toronto. It's yeah. fantastic. And, and when they come up in the fjords and there's this kind of floor and, you know, floor that's almost tropical, I thought you'd gone back to Hawaii to shoot, no? Yeah. Uh, no, that is all, uh, that's some of the limited work in the film, which is strictly digital, but based on observation of flora in the fjord in Norway. We, we wanted all that to be accurate. So the, everything you see is accurate to the location, even if recreated digitally. Fantastic. Let's talk about the actors. I mean, certainly your lead, um, who is every man, he does, he does those roles wonderfully. And in this particular instance, I think Matt was just fantastic because he, he's got a naivete and a, and a soulfulness that you just took so everybody could play off of him. But I think clearly the most unique character is the Vietnamese woman. She's just fantastic. And, you know, you see it at the beginning. It, I'll tell her you said so. Yeah, you should. You should. She's, you know, it throws you off. And then, of course, I just saw the film tonight for the second <coughs> time. And your your whole focus goes to her. She's so beautiful and lovely. And you have made a political film. Because you see this whole, you know, the, at the beginning you realize this couple is having a hard time making it, as a lot of people do in this country. Have big dreams, have bought into the dream, but they can't actualize it. And of course, you're giving them, as as uh, Dushan says, the the great thing about this is not that you're saving the planet; it's the fact that you can live like you've always wanted to. Small. I mean, the the nuances of the script are just wonderful. But that's all pol politics. But I love the fact that you go to this wonderland, you go to this monstrosity of a house. Then you know he goes, he downsizes, as it were, and goes to the apartment. But then you see where the working people live. The through the wall and the hole and and the fact that with any kind of community, whether it's idealized and and so on, you're still going to have the slums. And uh, I, I just think that was a fantastic and profound thing that uh, is is serious. It, it is. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the that that process of uh, how long 
were you, just in terms of your designer, your cinematographer, all the people that you're working with, how long did that process happen before you shot? Uh, quite a while. I mean, there was a lot of prep for this. And, uh, Had to be. And obviously we uh, try to build as much as possible. I mean, this goes back to the silent days. You build as much as you can afford, and then you sort of draw a line, and then you paint what's after that. And that's basically what I found to be. This is my first visual effects film. And it's, the, it's a glorified version of what they've been doing since the silent days. Uh, take, for example, the Alondra apartments, the interior. You talk about the, where the Mexicans and Central Americans live. Uh, this retrofitted uh, construction trailer where big people supposedly went in and took huge sheets of plywood and punched out little areas to, to, to make these apartments. Um, we shot that on an extremely large, I, I'm told the largest soundstage in North America, it's a Pinewood stage in Toronto. At the cost of about a million bucks, we built the first three levels and then everything above that was digital extension. But based on photographed elements of those first three levels and used using photographed uh, extras, Tracy Boyd here along with James Price, the uh, visual effects czar, painstakingly shot extras hanging out laundry and running down the hall, the corridors all at the right angles to plug them in there. So I, what I wanted it, to, the challenge to the visual effects department was that I wanted it so photo real and then production design so lived in as to be banal. I wanted it to be like a, a Stanley Kubrick movie, but as it would appear in a Hal Ashby movie or something. And, I, and, I, and the whole thing, even the grain we put in toward the end and how we did the, the, um, the DI was to make it look like a movie shot in about 1978. I think that's, uh, to me, one of the joys of the film is, you know, when, when filmmakers get the uh, digital tools in their hands, uh, too often the idea is let's get phantasmagorical and make it look as unreal as possible. You know, this film looks real all the way through. And of course, there are a couple of shots I still think look a little cartoony. Well, you always will. When you're working with digital effects, there's always that we've got to finish, we've got to release, <laughs> and you will always see those. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a fact. But but that was and I you know the 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 detail and the nuances in this piece. I love that when you come into that slum area and there's there there's Cantinflas on the screen, you know. And and, and for you Cantinflas fans, uh, which film is it? It's called Sube y Baja. Go up and go down. Which, among the list of Cantinflas films, I thought was thematically relevant. I think that the visual nobody pays attention to this crap. But <laughs> well, you know, we have to make you have to, yeah, yeah, you have to put thought in. Well, there 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 are going to be people that see this film that will know it, and uh, but the but the visual puns that go throughout. I mean, there are things that are undeniably funny to see that moment of Kristen Wiig with her head shaved and only one eyebrow shaved. It's it's fantastic. I mean, you know, those moments. Talk, let's talk about about your, as I said, um, you know, I, the idea that this is a serious movie. It's about the end of the world in its own way, because why are people downsizing? Because we're using it up. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the central, I mean, I'm saying the obvious, but one of the central ironies of the film is that in order for us to overcome this uh, catastrophe of consumerism on the planet, you have to find an idea which invites people to consume more. Yep. 
it's true. That's what I mean. You know, Al altruism seeks egotism to uh, survive. And you had uh, Dushan as your uh, your voice in there. He, yes. You know, the voice of re of reality and cynicism. You know, the Serbian black marketeer. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you ever saw Melancholia which was a film made in Scandinavia about the end of the world. And, of course, then there was Tree of Life, which was about the end of the world. These are serious subjects, and they are, by the nature of them, semi-depressing. What this film was able to do was talk about what we're doing to ourselves, but at the same time, as I said, I just found it to be so unique. It's this, I don't know where it's going. I'm, I'm writing this, I'm writing with Matt Damon into this world. It's definitely from his POV. But in a way, he finds himself. That's, you know, at the end of the piece, the thing that's wonderful, which those other films couldn't do, is that, you know, well, the end of the world may be coming, but he's finally, after all that search, found himself. Well, you know, as long as the end of the world is coming, let's uh, get a few laughs out of the deal and maybe make some money. <laughs> um, let's, let's um, you know, I want to open this. I'll, I'll pop in with some other, you know, ideas at a certain point. But I want to give you a chance, if you would like to ask any questions of Alexander. At your service. Uh, well, look, here's this poor gal who had to survive. She had to escape from a Vietnamese prison by uh, uh, secreting herself along with some colleagues into a TV box and uh, show up at a Costco in Oregon. Uh, and then we thought... Well, what do we do with all the other ones? Well, maybe they just died. Okay, fine. And what, she just magically survives? Yeah, she survives, but let's make there's you know, something wrong with her. Something happened to her. Oh, well, how about if she got a leg infection and lost half a leg? Okay, that sounds pretty good. And then so you wind up with a, uh, a Christian environmentalist maniac Vietnamese one-legged dissident as a love interest in the film. And I had never seen that in a movie before. <laughs> And then, you know, you get some, have some stump stuff going on. Uh, you know, visual effects, by the way, one of the, sometimes the trickiest shots are the, are the simple ones. The, the amount of man hours and work, work putting, you know, he comes back to her, uh, her apartment and he says, well, where's Gladys? And she's, oh, she died. Really? Yeah, you know, maybe I gave her too much pills. Anyway, you take care of my leg now, and she, in one take, walks over, sits down on the champagne cork uh, be, uh, stool, and pulls off her prosthetic and holds it out, and you see her stump. For a person who actually is, is able-bodied to do that um, convincingly, that, that one took some time. I'm sure it did, but it was totally convincing. Yeah, well, That's, you know, that, movie that, magic. Yeah. They can sink the Titanic. I mean, pulling off a prosthetic of can't be that hard. <laughs> uh, right here, a gentleman with a beard. Oh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I've never done previs. I've never storyboarded in my life before, never done previs, and uh, did it in this film. Yes, you're correct. Well, it's uh, like so many aspects of this film which were new for me. It's a wonderful education to see what all the other kids are doing. And, uh, you know, I guess it's fun. Do you, do you uh, storyboard? Only action and uh, special effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's so liberating, though, to get to scenes where I didn't have to storyboard, where I could shoot a real, you know, what I call a real. I mean, I told the, the, the DP and the visual effects czar, I said, as much as possible, trick me into th making me think I'm making a real film, that is to say, a movie without visual effects. So I can keep the the story and the acting always uh, first and foremost. 
Um, but uh, nothing to say other than I enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's actually fun to be able to steal ideas from the storyboard artist if you have a good one, that he comes up with some camera angles that maybe you haven't thought of. That was helpful. Um, but, you know, in general, I can kind of take it or leave it. <laughs> All right. Uh, young lady here and then the gentleman. How do I work with the second unit director? Honey, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, we've been working together in this sort of capacity since about Schmidt for many, many years. So we have a shared sensibility and we go, you know, as much as possible before he goes out to a certain scene, we talk together about what the shots might look like and how we can accomplish them. Uh, it's also uh, the the bad side about his job is that production often cheats second unit. Don't they don't send the sound crew, or they don't have as many extras, or they, you know, they need certain equipment that a camera can't give. And so, a lot of time, the, the Tracy does a brilliant job when he's given all the tools, and many times even when he isn't. But sometimes we're fucked when he goes out there and spends that time and money in the shot because he wasn't given all the proper resources, can't be as good as it. How do you work with second unit? I have the same problem. I have a, a, a protege who's been my second you know, director since Blood In, Blood Out years ago. And he's, he's my storyboard artist also. He's fantastic. But what Alexander says is exactly right. For all of you production managers out there, uh, you know, you're in a situation where you are always fighting time and money. And uh, and ultimately, you say, you know, we can really help this film by, you know, allowing the second unit to go out and pick things up that will make it a better film, will make it a bigger film, will make it a more detailed film, so that when you get in, you know, because you're focused on the first unit, but when you get in the editing room, you need all that stuff. Yep. And inevitably, they just say, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. So you've got to fight for your second unit to be able to go out and, you know, and get and have a, some, like I mean, Alexander said it some extras, you know, to have a crew big enough. I mean, to have an AD, they go well. Why do we need a, an AD to go out with a unit? You know, because someone's got to organize it. So it's it's one of those things that, um, and it's important to talk to this group. That's such an important tool for filmmakers that want to have a big enough film, but it's a bitch every time. When you're in the editing room, there is no such thing as second unit. That's right. That's right. Yes. He's asking about finding Hong Chao. Uh, we, we meaning John Jackson, my casting director, and I had begun the process of, uh, of throwing a casting net as far as to Vietnam, Vancouver, Australia, Paris, anywhere where there's a sizable Vietnamese colony. And mercifully, this gal, Hong Chao, lives in West Hollywood. <laughs> and came in pretty early in the process uh, on an audition. And the casting director, I wasn't there the first time she came in, and he said, I think we, I think we got a live one here. I watched the tape, I said, oh yeah, she seems to be the real deal. Let's bring her back in. I said, but you know what, she's so good, I wanna have a coffee with her before she comes back in. It's, I think it helps director and actor to give an actor direction either before or during an audition. So I met with her at, uh, of all places, Cafe Gratitude on Larchmont. <laughs> Irritating place. <clears throat> Cafe Baseball Bat. And uh, 
we talked for an hour. I could find out about her and how she came, you know, who the hell she was and everything. And because I wanted her to succeed. And I said, well, when you come back in next week, please try this, this, and this. And then she came back in and did it, you know, even better than the first time. And she's a, a just a wonderful person. And uh, uh, that was probably the single most exciting part of making the film was helping midwife that performance. And how much work had she done before? Brief word about Hong Chao. Born in Thailand to Vietnamese refugee parents. Um, emigrated to New Orleans. She's from New Orleans. Uh, a lot of Vietnamese people down there because of the shrimp industry, and they had been shrimpers in the old country. Her folks have convenience stores and a, and a filling station. First one in her family ever to go to college, she went to BU to study film. She likes film. She's a film nerd. And while acting in her colleagues' student films, they would tell her, you know, you're pretty good. Yeah, poo me, pshaw. Oh, no, no, you really are. She got the message and afterwards went to New York City to take some acting and started getting work. And I had seen her only in um, Inherent Vice. She plays a hooker in Inherent Vice. Um, and then she was later in Treme, the New Orleans connection, just... Um, incidental. And she was later in Big Little Lies. But this is really her second movie role. And um, Matt Damon's word for her constantly on set was thoroughbred. <laughs> She's a thoroughbred. That take where we uh, move closer to her face when she says, you know, Jesus is giving me a big gift. I'm going to Norway too. And she starts crying, take one. No, it's, it's pretty clear she had... She had the goods. She yeah. really did. Um, yes, way in the back, gentleman in the back. Well, the, uh, the, there's some Norwegian in it, which is subtitled. But somehow, maybe because I speak Spanish myself, I didn't really feel the need for subtitles for the Spanish. And well, I think and, that's and it. I think that what they're saying is, even if you don't speak Spanish, it's pretty clear visually, and by you know, you pick up word here or there. It, I don't know. It just didn't. It just felt like it would clutter it. I didn't think anybody would really benefit from the subtitles. I, I agree. I think it was. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. It, it it communicated beautifully. I love when the old man calls her Chinita. Oh yeah, which know. he would. Yeah, he yeah. would. Um, anybody else? That actor. He's he got cut up by a chainsaw in Scarface. Really? Yeah. Oh. That's yeah. That's Pepicera. Yes, yeah. back here on the aisle. The the cutesy stuff. Yeah, we. I was pretty. I'm pretty allergic to doing cutesy pie shit in the movie, and uh, I haven't seen. Like I've never seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I've never seen The Borrowers. I've never seen Indian in the Cupboard. You think I would have? Yeah, I just don't. I, but I saw clips from all of those movies when the visual effects guy and I were going through good examples of bad examples of how they've had small depicted small people in movies. The Borrowers is the one that really goes overboard with that stuff. The little, you know, the thimble and the, you know. Yeah, th thanks for saying we didn't get too cute. <laughs> the one I like, though, is uh, when they're walking up the steps of the Alondra apartment, there's some kids sliding down using uh, pop, pop bottle tops, Coca-Cola. That, that one I kind of liked. The, you, it, it, there's a lot of stuff behind this. We, we worked for years on this damn script. And uh, the U.S. government gives automatic amnesty if you agree to downsize. So they're actually, 
And uh, uh, there's enough work to go around that people will, you know, they'll still want to downsize to to have even those menial jobs. And of course, you know, with with the main character, with the Vietnamese character, remember she went to prison, and as punishment, they downsized her. She had too big a voice, and so they downsized her to shut her up. You know, the government will. Always, I think the thing with with Alexander that I I do love. There's always politics. How many of you saw election? Well, that's nice. There's a lot of Alexander Payne uh, fans here. But if you remember in, in election, you know, it's it, there was humor. It was wonderful, and you're watching it. But ultimately, she was a monster. And she was going to Washington, and she was going to succeed. And what is happening today are those people. And at the very end of the film, if you remember, <laughs> you know, he, you know, he's in the street. She's driving away, and he, in a very brutal way, throws something at at that car you know because he knows that he was the teacher she's going to succeed and those people do uh i I always love that that final image in that film because it it really was the anger of the filmmaker about what he had created but he knew it was true so triumph of the pukes (laughs) that's right Uh, Uh, by the way about to come out on criterion so um listen i uh I, I love the fact that Alexander wanted to be here with us um, and that this group is, uh, believe me, so much different than every other where we talk about filmmaking. And uh, just think I want to commend him again for an extraordinary achievement. Thanks, Taylor. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Taylor Hackford, Check out episode 55, which features Mr. Hackford discussing his film The Comedian with director David O. Russell. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, and James Franco's The Disaster Artist. Also, be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally, 